This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gatto, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. Stella at Hawk Est Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 218 for February MMXXII. Backroll to Oracle is brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. Well, I think this this is one of those episodes that is an example of, I don't know, forbearance and grit. And I think had I 
recorded this right after getting back from New York City. I would have had, I would have been in a better emotional place than I am right now, just with work really taking a turn. And I now call it my prison. So if I ever uh, go on a walk during lunch, which I've been doing just to get out of there, I usually say either to myself or if I'm on the phone with my mother, you know, it's time to go back to the prison. So we shall try to persevere and not show the emotional strain that it is taking on me and have some uh, some uplifting conversations. Maybe this will be a fun set of issues. Maybe not. That was another reason why I was it was tough. I've delayed this recording for so long because I thought, oh man, I got to talk about those issues. So first, I do want to talk about my trip to New York City. I can't remember which winter storm it was, but I was in the thick of it. <laughs> kind of reminds me of the, some of those reels that pop up on Instagram and it's like children or something saying into the thick of it. That was certainly what was going on. So I was going, the plan was to take the train up from Charlottesville to NYC and then NYC to Poughkeepsie. And then my chief Tata correspondent, Professor Karen Coco, was going to pick me up and then drive me to her locale, which is in uh, New Paltz, New York. And then that, that would have been on a Friday, then Saturday driving down early and seeing the matinee of company, which is what I chose when I won those tickets. And yeah, so that was the plan. And then, you know, I guess hanging out in the city and then coming back Saturday evening and then just hanging out with Carolyn and her family on Sunday and then going back home on Monday. So the week prior to this, out of the blue, Carolyn texted me and said, should we see another show? You know, we're seeing this matinee. Should we see another one since we're there? And I basically said, you know, I'm never going to turn down the opportunity to see another show. And then the question of what what is it? And I asked her if there was anything that she wanted to see. I really want to see Moulin Rouge. Uh, she said, I was giving her the option. She said, Music Man, question mark, which, of course, you know, Music Man has at, at the moment has Hugh Jackman as Harold Hill and Sutton Foster, the great Sutton Foster as Marion the Librarian. So I was like, sure, you know, let's see what we can do. I knew that those were kind of expensive. Who knew if we were going to be able to find seats or not? We found seats up in the mezzanine near the back, I believe. I think when I saw them, I said, you know, I've seen this. This is the price tag. And then the question, well, do we do we risk it or not? Not only, well, mainly because of COVID, because the, the winter storm was not yet a threat. And I, you know, it's not a sure thing, obviously. People get COVID multiple times, but I knew that Hugh and Sutton both had COVID already. And so I thought, well, maybe chances are smaller that they won't have it again so immediately after when they first got it. And if anything else happens, you know, they'll just cancel it, cancel it, and we won't have lost anything. So we decided to get those Music Man tickets. And then because I had free tickets, it's almost like it balances out anyways. So, oh, wow, now we're going to see The Music Man. And then the beginning of that week, 
I get a text that is a weather report from Carolyn and says, you know, look at the bottom and it says 10 to 16 inches coming in on, I think, Friday night to Saturday, early Saturday morning. And she says, you know, I've been in New York (laughs) my entire life, but I'm not going to be driving through an inch per hour of accumulation, that sort of thing. So uh heart palpitations begin, prayers begin send out, you know, requests as well. Like, Hey, yeah, pray, pray for this situation to, to resolve itself. And it, it significantly drops midweek. It was like one to two, two to three. And so that was more manageable. And then starts ticking back up again to the point where I'm on the train and we're still conversing about what to do, basically, that there is going to be accumulation. It's going to be harder to get into the city. What should we do? trying to figure out lodgings and things like that. So I do want to say about the train (laughs) that I always prepare myself for waiting situations as well as travel with a book. I think that it is a wise venture. If you don't care for books, I'm sure that you bring some sort of technology so you can watch Netflix or something. So I always bring a book. Now, the book I needed to read was... The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath, because that was going to be our next recording with Tom. And so I thought, oh, I'll be able to knock out a good chunk of this since I also have some grad school readings to do. This will be good. So I'm in the train station reading and I just mind my own business. No one needs to talk to me when I'm reading a book. It gets to a point actually where, I mean, this is like an antisocial awareness thing or an alarm should go off. If someone's reading a book, don't try to have a conversation with them. No one does. But now I'm outside waiting for the actual train and this guy starts chatting me up and he says, you know, I noticed you were reading there. What were you reading? (laughs) And I said, oh, The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath, which when I, I guess should have been, it should be potentially, if you are aware of literature, a red flag for anyone chatting you up that maybe you're unstable which when I was telling this story to Carolyn on the way back from the city, she started guffawing because of how funny that is. And he had not heard of it. And I mean, how do you even describe it? I basically just said that it's about a young woman in the city who has an emotional breakdown, which of course, you know, it gets a bit deeper and darker than that. And yes, it was good. And I was like, yeah, you know, it's it's always hard for me to use modifiers when describing that sort of literature or anything that's kind of difficult. I'm like, you know, yeah, it's it's good. It's worthwhile. You know, are you really enjoying it? Maybe enjoying like the the literature itself or the writing, but the subject matter, you know, maybe not. And he noticed my buttons and said, you know, I noticed your butt, which I, I hate the Joker, I think. And he was talking about the different jokers and when Jared Leto was cast and he had no idea who that was and rock band and I'm, you know, who doesn't know Jared Leto, but he, he, I guess he's old fashioned music. So I'm being polite, but you know, I'm, I'm not up for this. And I'm also thinking to myself, please don't sit next to me or near me on the train because I really need to do some homework. <laughs> and oh, luckily he, he just sits behind me, but there were at least two or three conversations that he had on the train where he, I guess he recently got out of a a relationship and then come to find out he, his girlfriend was a stripper. He met his girlfriend at a strip club and he was telling his mom, he was telling a good friend. I don't know why it was being broadcast in that way. Part of me was like, is he, he's aware that I'm in front of him. Is he trying to show that he's single. But then also I'm thinking, why would anyone want to date someone who has met someone, you know, whose previous girlfriend had 
Well, that's not even necessarily true because that's, I think, somewhat judgmental. But let's just say, would I want to date someone who frequents strip clubs? I think that would be more of an issue rather than the, the, the person she could have been lovely. I don't know. So anyway, that was just like a little aside. Did my work. He got off at Philly and I get picked up. Snow is kind of already coming down in, in certain places. Get picked up. Now we're having this conversation, Carolyn and I, about what to do get to her house, lots of, you know, back and forth. And I just feel like, I think we should go down tonight. If nothing happens, then, Hey, we spend a little extra money or we got there early, but we're safe. But if something does happen and we chose not to do that, then we could potentially miss the show. And I talked to the agent that was with me in processing the tickets. And she said that she couldn't cancel the tickets unless the actual show was canceled. So really it was up in the air. So now what are we going to do? So I decided to look up some hotels. We find a hotel. So our musicals are, I think, 47th and 51st. Found a hotel on 50th. And I think it was like $109 a night. And then all of a sudden, once we were processing, I mean, that was astounding. Once we were processing it all out, a a little pop-up popped up and said, you know, if you provide us with your email, you can get $50 off or something like that. So now it's like drop significantly. So now we have this pretty good hotel and an amazing uh, area. Now I've got to find parking, which I didn't know that parking in New York City is like $40 for two hours, but we were able to find parking 24 hours for $40. So all of these things are coming together. We end up having dinner and then leaving about 930 again to the city. The city is, oh my gosh, it's like a scene out of I Am Legend. Only some people are walking across. The snow's already been falling and there's some accumulation, but no cars on the road. So it's pretty crazy. Get to our uh, our parking, check into the hotel, find out that breakfast at the hotel is $5, which again, in the city, in New York City, that's kind of astounding. And basically just uh, go to sleep, wake up. It's Hoth out. It is definitely Star Wars Hoth. We have to find Tauntauns to rent. No, we waited. We did a late checkout. The breakfast was lovely, by the way. And for the first time I had greens during breakfast, like a little salad. That was something that was unexpected. But we did a late checkout and basically just walked straight to our theater. We left about, I guess, 115 or so. And just fingers crossed, you know, that we would be able to get in. And, and they were very gracious and just let us go right in. And for company, which was our first show and the one that I got, just the playbill for that, Six rows back in orchestra center center. So I'm so appreciative to Prudential and and that contest and everything and Playbill.com, and that was just very gracious. And I'm I'm ever so appreciative of that. I love that whole experience. I really liked Company. I have one regret is that when Katrina Lank came out, no one clapped for her. But of course, everyone clapped for Patty Lapone, and I regret not starting to clap for Katrina Lank. But I remember reading some review and it's pretty middling and, and saying that it wasn't very interesting, that the set wasn't too interesting. And Bobby in general is a boring character, more or less. And the only person that this reviewer had seen that spiced Bobby up was 
in the 2007 revival with Raul Esparza, but I really liked, I really liked Katrina Lank as a gender swapped Bobby. I thought that the set was actually really interesting because the first half of this musical, which the musical is about a 35, a woman turning 35, originally a man and still single. And all of her friends are either in serious relationships or together, or perhaps on the precipice of a divorce. And, and she finds out different things about relationships. And there's also question, you know, why does she want one? Does she need one? Um, so lots of, you know, like societal pressures coming in, which gender flipping, I think it spoke to me more because, uh, you know, as a woman of a similar age, those sort of societal pressures oh, have been coming at me for longer than I would like. Unfortunately, you know, like ever since leaving college, wondering when are you going to settle down? Are you going to have kids, et cetera? that kind of stuff being asked inappropriately. So I definitely was, was getting a lot of um, vibes of like, yeah, I feel you, Bobby. But the first act are really a set of disparate vignettes where Bobby is visiting these different couples and there's no connected tissue with the exception of Bobby, but the set really brings it together and rectangles and squares and they'll move. And then she is able to like move physically from one space to the other, just like she's moving from one vignette to the other. And yeah, I really liked it. I think it was really interesting changing the genders around. I wondered, you know, if there'd be a sense of slut shaming or not, because Bobby as a man has these three women that, you know, he kind of bounces between and tries to figure out if he should be with one of them. So I wondered, oh, what's it going to be like if it's a woman now? I didn't get that sense of, oh, look, you know, she's, she's promiscuous, that kind of thing. And they did lots of really fun and I think original ideas. I mean, I've never seen any other production, but one scene where she wakes up after being with a sleeping with the, the flight attendant and you have this like uh, movement in round where you have different aspects of her Bobby with the flight attendant, Bobby with this, I think he was a doctor and then Bobby with this kind of like bohemian guy. And what is that like? And they keep going around and around and adding new characters and just what would her life be like with each of them? That was really interesting. I really, I find that one song not getting married today. I think that's what it's called. It's, it's show it's so frenetic that I was just really intrigued to see how it was going to go. And it's done really well with the angelic singer popping out, or I guess they call her a priest popping out at different places. So it was, it was really good. And then of course the second act really focuses in on Bobby and Bobby questioning everything. So I liked, I'm trying to think if there's anything else about that in particular. I also wondered, you know, when you switch to a woman, if the women in the relationships become a bit more suspicious of Bobby and what her relationship is like with the men. But I didn't get that sense either, even though there could have been some people that may have had some attractions to, to Bobby, but it switches up like um, Joanne, I think originally propositions Bobby as a man, but here she propositions her husband for Bobby, which was interesting. So there are changes, but I enjoyed it, like I said. And I think the, the powerful number that everyone expects being alive, I think it was that one. Everyone expects like a huge, powerful number. And I like how Katrina did it where she broke down. And, and at one point, I guess really during the second verse, she struggles, you know, spitting out what she is trying to say. So I recommend it if you can see it. Anywho, I think that's it. So then we left no stage during, which is really sad. I always love to do that. 
went to juniors to eat, which is always a delight. That's something I always tried to do. And I was like, sleep was kind of falling over me. Just, I didn't sleep well. And that whole traveling, you know, it was a long day on Friday. So I needed to pick me up. So, you know, shout out to all those people who really love coffee. I did have a cappuccino with my cheesecake at juniors, but it was good because it gave me enough energy for the music man. And I know everyone was super excited for Hugh Jackman, but I have to say, I was really excited to see Sutton Foster, who is someone that I really respect uh, ever, ever since her journey from throwing modern Millie. And I just find her to be an amazing singer and dancer, but Hugh, I mean, we can't, I'm not going to stub my nose at him. It was, it was really good. Hugh Jackman brings such charisma to a guy who's, you know, basically a villain. He's not a nice guy, but to see that journey. And I read another review. So there's a lesson here at the end of this. And I read another review that there's no chemistry between him and Sutton. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about, but the dance sequences were amazing. Sutton wasn't given much dancing to do, which is like her forte, but she was given a tap number at the end, which I feel like was totally catering to her. But some of the, yeah, the ballet movements and things and all the chorus and and what they were able to do is just really amazing some like the first i guess 76 trombones all that dancing the dancing inside the library it's just it was really great and i had fun with it as as a musical that's not like on my top list of musicals i enjoyed it and it was definitely to see the two leads and i i think they really shined through it was interesting because the audience was like super duper into it and to to an annoying extent because i may be a broadway snob but i would love for clapping not to begin until you know the end of a note especially if it's a sustained note you don't necessarily know people clap after like a couple bars because they're like oh my gosh they sustained that note for so long but honestly we could miss something and let them sustain the note and then clap and, and give them their due but yeah people were loving it loving it for sure So yeah, recommendations. This, uh, I usually get a Broadway t-shirt per show. Here's mine from Music Man. Uh, I didn't get one from Company, though I did get a magnet. The Company ones weren't as interesting. And since they're $40, I wasn't about to spend $80 in one go on t-shirts. So I think I'm okay with that one. And then my, my playbills, of course, which will go in my playbill binder because I'm a nerd. And yeah, so then that evening, so I do want to say that we didn't get to do too much um, because of the Hoff-like conditions and we spaced it out enough that we were able to just go straight to the theaters, but I was loving it. I was loving the conditions. I love, love, loved it. I cannot say enough how much enjoyment I got out of those snowy conditions. I was like skipping around and running to to the extent that I'm pretty sure I probably annoyed Carolyn when I every time we were about to go outside, I'm like, oh, oh it feels downright balmy. <laughs> so I loved it. I apologize to Carolyn for maybe getting on her nerves with how much I loved it, but we had to pick up our bags that we checked at the hotel and then also get the 
the car from the parking lot at the very end and she was not about to do six blocks. I was willing to do six blocks. I said, well, I'll go get those bags and then I'll come to you. Must have been a miscommunication. So I'm like having my fun time. I pick up the bags, having my fun time back at the parking lot, which is by the Gershwin Theater, by the way. So we could get swept out. Waiting, waiting, waiting. Carolyn's not there. I'm thinking, uh oh, miscommunication. So I had to go back, but that was fine by me because I, you know, I, I loved that type of weather and I was just taking pictures of all the snow accumulation. Man, I just need to live back in the state of New York again so I can get back to this. I miss Buffalo so much. And we, yeah, we drove back and had our conversations and the drive back wasn't like the drive up there because the conditions were completely different. Slept in a bit maybe like till 9am or something on Sunday and we watched some things. So we caught up on, remember that Carolyn is a bully. So she kept wanting me to watch some stuff about Titans. So we watched some scenes of Barbara in Titans. I'm a bit baffled. I don't know if I want to bring it all back up, but the fact that Barbara Gordon in Titans I thought it was Selena Kyle. I think I turned. There was like some sort of flashback. I turned to Carol and I said, oh, is it Selena Kyle? And she says, no. And then I went, no, no, don't tell me. Don't tell me. Yes, it was Barbara Gordon who apparently steals things and then contracts Dick Grayson into stealing things. And then they have a happen in time. And then someone dies on their watch because they're doing all of this, this funsy stealing. I, I don't understand. She also says the F word, which... I don't think my Barbara Gordon would do, except maybe one time to to Batman. She does let Batman have it, which I feel like is is in character. She would do that more so than other people. And there was, of course, some sexy time between her and Dick. But otherwise, I would say I'm not really sure who that Barbara Gordon is. And then someone on Twitter had recommended I see a Batwoman episode where Stephanie Brown pops up. So we found what that was and watched it. And guess what? That's not Stephanie Brown. You know who that is? That's Barbara Gordon. <laughs> I'm saying it's Stephanie Brown in name only, but that was super bizarre. And then we watched Boba Fett episode five, maybe, which was Mandalorian based. And she betrayed me, by the way, because before that I had said, oh, you know, wait to watch that with me. And then the week of she said, oh, did you watch Boba Fett? And I was like, are you kidding me? I I told you to wait. So there was some betrayal there. I just want to say. And I'm trying to think if there's anything else we watched. Funny thing happened on the way to the forum. So we had some Stephen Sondheim continuing through. I had never seen that, of course, Roman history. And then I wanted to watch Promising Young Woman with her, which, of course, that's just something that I push on many people because I like to watch it with other people and have discussions with them about it. And yeah, and then Monday was when I was setting off and uh, she drove me to the station and said adieu. I gave her my handkerchief and, you know, as you do. No, I'm just kidding. And yeah, and I guess that was basically it. The train ride down was pretty interesting. Well, going up, you had to have a seat open because it started to get packed. But on the way down, I was able to have my my own double seats the entire time and could kind of put out my schoolwork and stuff. So that was nice. And yeah, and then got back. I took off Tuesday, but apparently I didn't tell my boss that I took off Tuesday. So she was wondering where I was. And then on Wednesday, I immediately got reprimanded for not saying that I was going to be off on Tuesday. So I had the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. But overall, yeah, NYC was great. I think if I were to do an NC-17 rated podcast episode, I'll tell you everything that you never thought you wanted to know about the Cocas and 
I think I could charge a premium for that, put all the ads on it, put all the ads. But that was basically it. Yeah. So I, I'm just uh, blessed that everything worked out. I think, you know, while prayers were my prayers were, please let that snow not come. I think that there was a no for that, but everything else worked out accordingly. So say what you will about the, you know, prayers, but they're usually answered, just not necessarily how you want them to. Okay, I think that's it about NYC. My last thing just before these reviews is the Find Your Joy segment, Shag's Mac and Cheese of Comfort and Joy. And I will say, because times have been tough, as I alluded to at the top, but I have been playing. It took me entirely too long, too, but just because time management and what I've been doing with school and everything, I've been playing. And I just finished Cana Bridge of Spirits. And uh, that just came out in 2021, late 2021 or early 2022. And I really loved it. I mean, it's like a game just for me. I really like Kana. There are really cute little creatures named Rot that accompany you. I mean, that's that's absolutely what I want. I loved the story. I thought that the story was touching. It was deep. It was fun has some environmental and familial and religious aspects to it, you know, the the spirits and everything more, I mean, not necessarily like Christian based, but certainly like just um, there's a a spirituality to it. And then there's a lesbian couple on it, which, you know, that I, I do like the queer couples popping up. And yeah, so I recommend it. It was just a fun um, escapism for me in these tough times. And I have since sent it back and I just got notified Gamefly is sending me Resident Evil Revelations, which was a recommendation that Jaime had suggested. So he's on the line for sure. We'll see if I like that or not. Okay, so now I'm going to talk about this series from 2002 to 2003 called Batman hyphen family. And I've got to figure out where we are. One moment. Here we go. And if you are like me, you (laughs) will never have heard of this, (laughs) to be honest. I did not hear of this. I actually was, this was similar to that Joker issue that I was trying to get away from. I was going to try to do this as quickies with Tom. And then I realized there were eight issues of it. And I thought, oh man, I can't do it. And then I realized that Babs is in more than one. And I thought I might as well just do it as a separate. I won't spoil whether it was worthwhile or not, but I had not heard of this. And well, I guess I'll also tell you whether it's, was it a worthwhile read? Was it worthwhile to his mythology? I did not want to write a synopsis for this. I think I'm a bit checked out from this story, I would say, rather than podcasting. But did this month a lot have has gone on to Professor Allen, his chagrin. I was on multiple podcasts. So that also could be. So I DC, the DC wiki or whatever, did have really detailed, there's the word synopses, but I was not about to read through eight of those. And then I went on Comixology because they give pretty good publisher synopses. This book does not exist on Comixology. I was looking, looking, looking. All it was giving me was the Batman family from the 70s. And then when I looked up the writer, he only has like two things. So 
apparently people are for, for forgetting. And then I couldn't remember there was this website that had pretty good synopses that are short little blurbs. Couldn't find it. Oh, I remembered. So thank you to Comic Vine for these blurbs here. So Batman family, Batman colon family one through eight ran from November, 2002 to February, 2003 writer, John Francis Moore artist Rick Hoberg, Steve Liber and Stefano Gaudiano colors, Carla Fini, Jessica Kinzierski, which two women who knew and heroic age issues one through six were illustrated by Stefano Gaudiano and Rick Hoberg. And then Steve Liber replaced Hoberg on issues seven and eight. Okay. I'm still kind of trying to figure out what to do here. So I guess I'll do the blurbs for each. And then I took a lot of notes on one and two, and then it kind of started dying out. But I'll go, I guess, individual episodes or issues here. Okay. So issue number one. In Bruce Wayne's long absence, Wayne Enterprises has been slowly slipping from his grasp. Now, as he squares off against an enemy who will stop at nothing to take his legacy from him, Batman also must contend with a deadly new vigilante who's recently arrived on the scene. But this potential foe is needed as an ally when a wave of new villains begins terrorizing Gotham. Issue two, meet the mysterious leader of the new wave of criminals who vows vengeance on Batman for very personal reasons. She begins her assault by targeting the spoiler who, get this, recently lost her gig as a member of Birds of Prey. What was she ever? Okay. Will spoiler prove to be, oh, listen to this, the weak link in Batman's family. And when you hear part two of this episode, you'll realize why I stopped there. Issue three, get ready for Bug and Dr. Excess. Bug has eyes everywhere in Gotham, watching, recording, learning with the heroes of Batman's circle in his sights. And what Bug learns, Dr. Excess uses with terrible results. But what is their involvement in a spate of bizarre incidents in which normal people are transformed into raging psychotics? Black Canary aims to find out, and she's not alone, as the vigilante Orpheus, can you believe it, Orpheus, returns to help safeguard the city. Four, who is the Suicide King? He's the ultimate terror, a killer so fearless he'll sacrifice his own life to kill and maim. Now he's after the heads of organized crime in Gotham City, but not for heroic reasons. This deadly minion faces pursuit on two fronts, as the Huntress and DEO agent Cameron Chase are on to him. Too bad for them. When this issue is over, Huntress no longer will be a help to Batman or a threat to Gotham's newest menace. Mm, Oh, poor Huntress. Five, meet Freeway, the right-hand man to Gotham's newest crime lord. He pulls strings, manipulates people, and gets things done, regardless of who gets hurt. Now he's targeted Robin, and Freeway isn't a man known to fail. When Robin falls into his trap, the identities of all the Bat heroes are in danger, and this time, acrobatics won't be enough. Six, his name says it all. The technician creates weapons for Athena's supervillain group, and he's also inserted himself into Gotham's underground, unleashing a panoply of new weaponry to the crime families that tear the city apart. Batman's caught wind of the arms escalation, however, and he wants it stopped. No. But the GCPD is running its own investigation, and Detectives Montoya and Allen are looking to break the case themselves, which means goodbye, Batman, and hello, Matches Malone. Seven. On the outside, he's all that's wholesome, the all-American man, sadly out of time. In reality, it's his victims who are out of time. (laughs) Mr. Fun has been assigned. Oh, geez. 
a surprising target, and it's up to Batgirl and Nightwing to stop him. Batman, meanwhile, discovers a deadly clue to Athena's past, but he may be too late as Athena and her gang are about to put their master plan into action. And then finally, number eight, Batman and his family, in quotation marks, launch an all-out assault on Athena and her family. But even if they win the battle, can they hope to save Gotham from a long and deadly night? All secrets are revealed, all scores settled, and when it's over, Gotham will be shaken to its very core with the future of Wayne Enterprises determined once and for all. Okay, so let us go, I guess, individually, and then I'll talk about them as a whole. So here is the cover for the first part, chapter one, Perception. It's intriguing. Looks like a card. And then, of course, you have uh, this guy here, Tracker, and he looks very sinister. And I thought, given the cover, that he was going to last a long time, but he does not. We actually, this begins right off the bat with this Santos character and it was someone that I had no idea who it was. He pops up repeatedly. He's involved in the gang somehow and Batman has a sketchy deal with him. And so I was asking around who is a Santos? Why would Batman be making a sketchy deal? It it comes to light that this guy's actually undercover and he's trying to prevent Batman and his family from getting involved until they can take down the, the manchetis. So that's what the deal is, but you don't really find out until late late and it makes it seem like this guy's been around for a while oh this thing okay so at one point of course this league of photographers and and news people at one point someone says are you the father of julie madison's baby is this just (laughs) someone asking as reporters do does julie madison actually have a child it's very interesting Batman goes up and he's about to get ousted from the board. And we have this Delia Wagner person. And that's yet another person who in this story seems like someone who's been around for a while. There are talks about murder fugitives. So the story is really, I think, picking up from that. And you still feel the repercussions from what well, at least Bruce does, the repercussions from that storyline, which I appreciated. But again, another person who I think is just in the story, when I tried to look her up, she had no hyperlink online. So I couldn't tell anything about her, but she gets thrown in the slammer anyway. So she doesn't last very long. Um, so asking for his his resignation because of the Bruce jerk murder situation. Keep on going with this. Uh, You see this down here. Robin is able to do a broke back pose. Now it is in order to get himself out of hanging chains and we'll call it training, but mm -mm -mm. good to know. Good to know. So the tracker we are told in an editor's note that That person is someone who has appeared in Detective Comics 773 to 775, taking down mob members and or activity, but not taking credit. So certainly it seems like this person could be on the up and up, but we later find out that it's a bit more complicated than that. I like that. Robin has the idea of Bruce being Bruce for a while and the family taking care of things and even compares it to Superman and Supergirl. But Batman says that Superman doesn't live in Gotham City and that's why he can't do that. So I wonder if this comparison actually works. Like, is it apples to oranges and you can't compare Superman and Batman or is it apples to apples? I feel like Superman's not as single-minded or obsessed as Batman If you put him in Gotham City, I think he would 
change. He would act differently. We saw that, didn't we? In No Man's Land where Superman is over and and he's trying to help out, but it's sort of, I feel like he loses some faith in his abilities and just in humanity by looking at it. So I can kind of get behind Batman, but I also wonder if Batman maybe does, and Dom is not going to like this, but I just wonder if Batman maybe doesn't trust his family as much as Superman does, because if Superman can just take off and leave it to Supergirl, though I think in the animated series, wasn't it Supergirl when he's missing? It's like Supergirl and some robots are, are helping out and a robot that is supposed to be Superman. But here, yeah, it's interesting. Could Batman not just be away? And, and it's in, it's also interesting, I keep using that word, because Batman isn't in the action the entire story in these eight issues, and other people are able to handle things. Dick can handle Blue Haven on his own pretty well. Barbara and the birds are doing okay. Tim has his own adventures. So they prove him wrong, but I don't know why, besides trust, what, what else is the reason why he wouldn't be able to take a night off or you know, a couple days or a week or something? So, yeah, I don't know if if the comparison works. I would think that you could, but perhaps, yeah, Metropolis versus Gotham, that is an apple and an orange and you shouldn't do it. I find it interesting that Tracker actually listens to his handlers when they tell him to back off and leave because this is something that we don't normally see people do. (laughs) They just decide to go on ahead and and keep doing what they feel like they need to do. I liked this technician. I thought that the technician was a woman until later on when they use the he pronoun, maybe because he, he looks like Clancy in Nightwing. So I don't think that is racist really does look like Clancy. So I thought, oh, it's just a cool, it's a cool chick with short hair, but it's actually a man. I think I already talked about Murder Fugitive. Uh, We get some history of Martha Kane here, a.k.a. Bruce's mother, dating someone who is wrapped up in the mob. So we get some background into her, and then we also get a connection between Celia and Bruce because of this, because Bruce doesn't know as much about his mother and Celia was good friends with her. So it's an easy in for Celia, which of course is not a good thing. Oh, this is, I don't know if I've ever seen, what's her name? Tammy Fox in a comic besides, wasn't she in Batman beyond calls her Tam Bruce does anyway. So anyways, I just thought that that was pretty shocking. Oracle is helping Batman in his business and his business life, which I appreciate. So looking at both sides and for Alan, her hair is pretty good. I would say got the bob. She's got the headband, which I try to wear headbands from time to time, but they really hurt. Give me a headache after a while, but I feel like they're pretty cool. Anyways, I like how, as we get to the end here, The Batman (laughs) subverts my expectations and doesn't immediately attack Tracker and actually tries to help him because he feels like, hey, you're doing some good work here and you're not using lethal means. Why not team up? But then, of course, Tracker takes him out and then Batman Batman's taken out multiple times for some reason. He keeps popping up and then he keeps getting taken out. And then Tracker, of course, dies later on. I felt like it was a pretty anticlimactic death. I mean, he was doing really well. And then all of a sudden he loses his footing and and falls to his death. The 
The fact that he says mother, I thought was interesting. I guess he's been watching Batman versus Superman. And then the entire time I was a bit suspicious about Cecilia. And we actually find out that indeed she is going to be pulling the strings and she's, she's going to be tearing this city apart. So I think that's all on chapter one that I want to share. So let us continue on to chapter two. Okay, chapter two is called Duplicity, and here is the cover. Steph is going to be in the center. You've got Celia, a.k.a. Athena, which that's a point I'll bring up later on, um, and then her family there. So we certainly get an info dump with who Celia is and how she is everywhere and all of her people and network. And she ends up going through the different family members. I found it interesting that Huntress was mentioned as a family member. And Steph, of course, is mentioned. And she's where we're going to uh, focus our time today or on this chapter anyways. And I thought, OMG, about Orpheus being plugged as well. That was someone that I did not expect to see again. And I don't know why Dinah pops up necessarily because it's it's almost poor writing and that you should have laid out all the people you want to focus on and then more people get added in here. Spoiler is described as the least well-trained. Whose fault is that? That would be the Batman's because he kind of dropped her. Celia's team has psych pro- profiles on all of the members, which I found pretty interesting, but it makes sense. Know your enemies, right? It's certainly starting to feel a bit like a movie now. You've got Celia losing her son. She wants to take everything from Batman, but also she wants Gotham. So it's just like, well, we've we've kind of been here before. Steph is approached to help somebody out and I guess go for the quote unquote weakest member, which I have a problem with, but there we are. Steph talking to Tim about, you know, what is her role on this team and and why isn't Batman continuing to train me? And of course, you know, she's in this position. If someone needs her help, why not take someone up on that? Even though it's not very wise because she doesn't have the capabilities to figure out and and do background on that woman or the man who has offered her the job. Steph and her mother. It was a bit puzzling to see her mother look like this. I don't think that she looked like that in BQM's run, but here we are nonetheless background on Martha, which was certainly pretty interesting. I I find it interesting that, of course, you know, Steph being the most vulnerable one, let's go after her first. But is she so, I mean, is she, she's kind of portrayed, I don't know, not idiotically, but I'm just disappointed, I think, again, of how she is portrayed because, yeah, she takes it. I mean, it seems a bit suspect. Someone's asking for help, but how many times has she probably witnessed? Have we witnessed as readers that there's more to the story than is being told to her? So she goes on this this little trip. We actually find out this was actually pretty fun. It could have been a Birds of Prey story, which I don't know why Steph is is called a member of the Birds of Prey. That's a bit suspicious. Dinah was kind of training her, but not really. And you find out that actually this is Selena Kyle and she's also pulling a job. So there are like multiple jobs going on. Lewis, this guy that Catwoman is with, is clearly a misogynist, says, you know, you women just can't be happy until you've done everything you can to ruin a man's life. 
not me. I'm through being walked on by high heels. I'm in charge now. And then Catwoman says, I think you have some issues with women, Lewis. So that was pretty funny. I don't know how, but Freeway, which is Celia's kind of go-to man, somehow is in the police station and is able to offer Lewis a deal. That seems suspicious. Oh, there were icy word balloons, but I don't know that I'm going to be able to. Oh, there it is. Look at this icy word balloon. You know how much I like that. You know, I'll grieve for Nicholas. Oh, because Freeway asks, you know, would you rather pretend your son isn't dead? And then she icically says, I'll grieve for Nicholas when all of Gotham City is under our control. So we find out that this woman was an actress, the one who pays, I guess, Stephanie or, or hires her. Stephanie, I think, ends up not taking the money and saying, you know, that's just who she is. So it's Eleanor Sanders. She's dead. She's actually mentioned earlier at the lunch with Bruce. So I guess just to have her exist before the end. But this just doesn't make sense, give what the motivations are for Stephanie being duped. It doesn't come back around, I'll tell you right now. So this was just a weird play that I was worried about Stephanie, but in the end, nothing really came of it because something could have happened with this, but there's just so much going on in this whole story that it just, um, unfortunately, yeah, not a lot happens here. Okay, we're on chapter three, POV. Here's the cover. Now we're starting to focus suddenly on a couple people. So Dr. Excess and the bug are going to be the people that we focus on here. Stephanie Brown was focused on before, but with no bad guy. Unless I guess you could maybe think that it's Celia, but that's an interesting juxtaposition. And here you have bug with all of his uh, surveillance stuff. And we're going to be looking at Dinah, who wasn't mentioned at all, really, and Orpheus. So yeah, this issue doesn't really, I think, jive with what is going on previously. It just throws us into new random action, if only to focus on these bug and um, the doctor characters. I say again, OMG Orpheus. We don't really know who this senator is. I think it's like Senator Bowman or something like that. But later on, you find out. I just don't know if it's good storytelling. I You could almost compare it to the Chuck Dixon way of Birds of Prey, where you have this cold opening and then more is explained, maybe, or it just goes on. But this is just like, it's almost as if we should have known who the senator was. And actually, we should not have been expected to know who he is, but we're made to feel that way. There's info dumping at the end of who he is, that he has some sort of uh, medical issue. And he's given this serum that pops up multiple times. Tracker had that serum as well. And it usually just gives them some strength and makes them like 200% themselves. And then they usually die. I do wonder why it's so unstable. Uh, Potentially, it's just unstable for the people that are not in the best health to begin with. We'll see that again, I think, at the end of this issue with, uh, yeah, this friend that um, Orpheus has. We get to know more about Orpheus or at least see the stuff that we should have had he his own series or connected from Orpheus Rising and things that we were promised. We get some info like that. Oh, I miss him. I think he could have been a fun character. Trying to see if there's anything else. I know that Oracle pops up and um, talks to him and they compare notes about 
technology, but that might have been a later thing. So, you know, Dinah appears and apparently she has moved to Gotham. She takes Orpheus to a library to recover, which I thought was pretty funny. And she makes a joke that a friend tells her to read more anyways. So that's why uh, she's in there. So that's something that I've, I don't think I've seen in Birds of Prey yet, just her moving to Gotham City. And I guess we'll, we'll find out more about that. And... Yeah, so there's Oracle, and then right below you've got Orpheus's own Oracle guy too. And yeah, unfortunately, yeah, tragic results just because he had that friend in the neighborhood, and then unfortunately he was killed because he was given that serum. But he could write his his last words on this uh, story that he had. Been on into chapter four, identity. I was pleased, as I'm sure you are not shocked about. That Huntress appears, so here she is on top of a playing card, so that's not the first time that we've seen the playing card theme, art theme. We saw it in issue one on that, Uh, and this is the Suicide King, and he is the focus here, but he also comes back at the end, and Huntress is able to get her revenge to a certain extent on him. So Huntress has a connection to the Rosettis from when she was young. And it makes sense that she is involved since she wants to, of course, take down crime families. So I'm glad that she does play a part, though. It's interesting that she is mentioned in the dossier as being a part of the Batman family. I think that's incorrect. But, you know, Celia can't be 100% correct. Agent Chase from the DTO, DEO, sorry, pops up. So again, another side character that makes their way. There's just one of my criticisms is that there is just entirely too much going on in this story, even though it's eight issues. There's just a lot going on. So here's Agent Chase. The deal we find out with Santos here that Batman is supposed to keep the Batman family away from the Rossettis because an ATF agent is undercover and Santos happens to be that ATF agent. So even though I thought Bat Jerk was on the down and down, he's actually still on the up and up. Batman and Huntress. Huntress doesn't listen to Batman, which is her right since she isn't a part of his inner circle. Yeah, he says, I want you to leave Gabrielle Rossetti's. Did I say Rochetti? I, I may have earlier in this episode. Rossetti's organization alone for the time being. And she says, you're joking. Rossetti's been aggressively expanding his business during the past three months. He tells her about the agent, and then she says, I don't care. I don't work for the ATF or you. As far as I'm concerned, Rosetti needs to be shut down now. The feds can make their case later. So, oh, man, I can appreciate it, least, which is interesting. Like, I don't know what he's doing down here at the bottom left. It's almost as if he's about to backhand her. I guess he's just gesticulating, and she's like, get that hand out of my face. She even said, you know, I'm not one of your inner circle. I'll make my own decisions. So I can appreciate, I think Donovan, listen up. I can appreciate that Batman does go to her and he does try to have a conversation and he is open and honest about, I would like you to do this. This is the reason why I'm asking you to do that. But I think it's also her right that, you know, I've, I'm, dealing with this the way I think it needs to be dealt with. I am not a part of your team, so you can ask all you want, but it's my own prerogative and I don't have to listen to you, which might be childish, but (laughs) given how she's been treated, I think she could, um, you know, potentially do that. And I will say that in the end, she does end up helping out the team. And, and I think there's, he, he, he treats her more respectfully than I think he has in the past. So I, I do approve of that. 
We find out that Helena teaches third grade, which I don't know that I ever knew which grade level she taught. At this point in time, I I was wondering, I, I began to notice this trend that, hey, we're focusing on a couple individual members of these different families, but I wasn't sure why this trend began with three Unless, like I said, issue two with Celia and Steph. But, you know, the covers starting with three start mentioning names, of the network family. So at the end, I note that there is a powerful, oh, that must have been with the, you get to see all of her training and what she does and being a teacher and things like that. And I made note that at the end, she has a powerful statement. So we do see, I, I like some of these action sequences with Huntress and Suicide King. It's a pretty intense battle she also has to make a decision here of you know does she let these people die because he's pretty sick he actually sets up this house that she comes into like the scene that she her her family were killed except they're all drugs so then she just has to make a decision of go after him or save them and luckily she makes a you know a good decision oh yeah here so uh, agent chase is saying I can arrange protection for them or at least put them under surveillance if there's family because now they know who Helena is. And Helena actually removes her mask and says, my family's dead and I have no friends in Gotham. It doesn't matter who knows who I am anymore. And I just thought that was really powerful. I mean, certainly it (laughs) shows that that might be reasons for what she does and how she acts, that she really has nothing to lose. But I also think it's it shows how you know strong of a a woman she is that she is able to withstand all this she's on her own and here she is she's making it she's doing okay okay chapter five interrogation we're going to focus on tim aka robin and freeway and here we have freeway in the rain in the in the puddle there and tim drake is dead in this issue Oh, boy. Well, it seems like as as the issues are going along that every member of the network owes a debt of gratitude to Celia. That's usually what their backstories cover, that she's able to uh, get them out of some sort of situation. I guess as the series goes on, we certainly see the importance of each of the members of both teams and how they add to those teams. I think it's easy for us to recognize that with the bat family but more needs to go into it with the network because we don't know them at all so who are these people should we care about them as villains are they worthwhile villains things like that and even with the bat family you have a bit to prove with certain members like steph because they said that she's vulnerable and the weakest link and huntress because she's usually on the outs and orpheus who's not really had much play time so there's some 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 space there i am surprised even though you know we get gave dinah some time nightwing doesn't get too much time and uh oracle gets zero time but it probably makes sense oracle doesn't get any time in terms of celia doesn't know her because i don't think anyone really should But it's also shocking that she doesn't know that there's some sort of technical handler. So anyways, here is Tim. Freeway is a really good fighter. And Tim really has to improvise, which he throws a kitty cat, which is not some people would be upset about this. At one point, so a lot of this is like a chase, chase and capture Robin and Robin's able to get away for a while, but then he's gassed and uh uh-oh, his mask is removed, which I thought was really interesting. 
because this does not happen to Tim Drake. We know how he feels like his his identity, how important his identity is, how uh, angry he was when Steph learned of it via Batman and a bit flabbergasted when Barbara knew who, who he was. But his fingerprints are false, which I thought was an interesting detail. Another criticism, I don't know if I've mentioned this at all, just that these seem, even though Celia is is and the, and the network are connecting, these just feel like individual issues. But Roger Sloan, this reporter that Tim is trying to find, he ends up getting killed. But Roger had tried to track down Bruce Wayne and say, Bruce, you're in danger. And he was arrested and all of that. So he pops up in, in different places. And so he's able to connect as well. But Roger is the one who I don't think we find out here. Tim is, that's why Freeways after Tim is because Tim got some information from Roger and Roger's trying to get that because Roger found, no, Freeways trying to get that from Tim because Roger found out or knows about Celia goes to a hospital, which doesn't often happen. But I guess that one question I asked of, would you take Batman to a hospital? I feel like I asked that a couple episodes ago. I guess this is how it works. You just keep your mask on and get served or serviced by someone who uh, you helped. I think that's basically it. Okay. Uh, Winding down, as you can tell, my interest level is waning in this story here. This is six, and we're going to focus on the technician. I kind of wonder how the writers decided to pair who with whom and where in the story they would also pit them up against one another. But we also, it's not only the technician, but I feel like that golfer guy also comes in. But anyways, the technician, almost like a Gotham City version of Toy Man, but still, I feel like an interesting person. Also, Babs is here going through all that information. Thank you, Barbara. There's some background of some shady deals and who Roger was and how Roger was able to get that information. Cass pops up in this one saying one word, which seems like that's the way to go for Cass. And the technician ends up getting taken by the family. And now the network has to basically, which is funny, I just I've I've started watching Clone Wars and at one point Newt Gunray, I think, is taken. And Count Dooku is basically like, if you can't rescue him, you need to get rid of him. And that's certainly what the the situation is like here. I like how there is a bat family meeting. At one point with Cassandra. They do say, oh, and this is an interesting scene here with Barbara working out and uh, Dick being there and Barbara is catching Dick up because he's been doing his own thing. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to find it, but Batman at one point calls Cass Cassie, which seemed really suspicious and didn't seem to fit. I don't think that I would call Cassandra Kane Cassie. I, I think of Cassie Sandsmark if I were to do that. So Cass or Cassandra. Barbara's hair when she's exercising looks pretty blonde to bring that up to the attention of my chief hairstylist correspondent. There's no one Bat Family member focus in this particular issue. We've got Renee Montoya and Christmas Allen as the side characters trying to figure out what's going on with this whole thing, the interrogation and everything of the people that were using some of the technician stuff. Batman at one point asks Oracle for some difficult things and says that 
they're difficult, but she manages them easily. Like for anyone, it'd be difficult, but she manages them well. And I thought, wow, that's approval right there from Batman and praise. And then this Roger Sloan guy, as we see, oh yeah, here we go. You never ask for anything. Easy LexCorp systems are better guarded than the Pentagon. There you go. He just trusts that she's going to be able to do it. So this Roger Sloan, I think it's the last time that we make mention of him. He seems like a loser, but he was able to connect all these pieces, which I don't know if it's believable or not, but I think it makes that story sad. Just this guy crying out for Bruce Wayne that he has information and no one listening to him and him just being shush. I feel like we've seen that in films from time to time. And now we are now we're going to get into the one I was talking about. Seven. Yes. Okay. With this guy, apparently an all-American man. I don't know. Uh, This chapter seven, Precipice. We've got Batman and Cass and Nightwing in the background. And then this guy, Mulligan of Death. Okay. The technician is actually captured. And as I said, let's take care of the technician. For whatever reason, don't rescue him. Just get rid of him, which is really interesting. This guy our our Mr. Mulligan of death. His narration boxes all seem to be motivational messages, which completely changes from previous narration boxes. He seems maybe like an all-American dad from Pleasantville, but he is not. There's that one point where I feel, yeah, look at this. Batman says that if the technician tries to escape, he tells this to Cass, cripple him. Do you think that's inappropriate? Do you think? I think so. Good thing that Barbara's not there is all I have to say. So Robin almost sneaks up on Nightwing, and this actually presages Mr. Fun actually sneaking up on Nightwing and knocking him out. And I'm actually surprised later on that Nightwing gets taken out so easily. I don't know. And he loses that fight. I mean, he gets hit, obviously. So now he's got these little dazed green things around his head. And he's just, whoo, it is not good for Nightwing. But I'm just surprised, I guess, that he was able to get taken out so easily. Batgirl only loses the fight because of technology and it happens to be Nightwing's technology, but it was another instance of, wow, how, how is this guy who looks pretty innocuous getting the upper hand on all of our fan favorite Batman fighters? I don't know. So Nightwing and Batgirl are out of the fight and I feel like Mr. Fun could just grab the technician and leave, but he doesn't. I think that's just who he is, maybe. And I don't know. It's not like the technician was injured. He could have ran away. But the the technician knows right off the bat, because Mr. Fun is there, that he is, he's a goner. But it one does wonder, you know, I guess it's just easier to get rid of somebody than bring them back. So the background of Celia's rise to power is pretty interesting because the guy in the in the flashback, wherever we are, I guess it was in the black and white, is so frightened of her that, I don't know, it just, it doesn't make sense to me for him to be. I mean, she just blackmailed him. And then later on, she set fire to his building. But that made him so troubled that he ends up leaving his companions in Greece. And I feel like what comes later is even more troubling. But 
I don't know. He he treats her very like, oh my gosh, she don't even say that name. And and I don't see where that is um, warranted necessarily. Okay, and the last chapter is blackout. One of my ooh, one of my criticisms, we have this owl representative of Athena, is that you know, this Athena thing, I feel like it came that name came out of nowhere in the middle of the story and then it was forgotten and then it popped up again. I mean, that's her, that's Celia's code name, but it just didn't seem to be consistently there. And so the owl popped up a couple of times, but here it's just like, oh yeah, that's right. She goes by Athena. Uh, another time that Batman says something positive about Oracle. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to find it, but at one point he says, I can depend on Oracle's analytical skills to supplement my own. So he thinks highly of himself, but he knows that Barbara can help him out when he is missing something. I do wonder what happened to Steph. Uh, We pick up and we see her again. Oh, here. I did have a question as to why she's stripping, changing clothing in Tim's car, but I mean, it was just that storyline was completely dropped. You know, what was going on with that? Donna pops up again. Huntress, here we go. Isn't this interesting? So Batman appears and says, I need your help. I'm not on your payroll, says Huntress. And uh, he says, I can give you the suicide king. She considers. And then she says, I'm in. So at least there's a begrudging like, okay, I'll help you out. And thank you for giving me something that I want. Dinah mainly, I think her incentive on being the, on the team is because of Barbara. Certainly have an elaborate revenge scheme against the Rossetti patriarch. You'd think that you would want Huntress to help you out because she could and she would probably be down with that. But I guess Celia is not about that. More background between Celia, more so the, the fallout between Martha and Celia and Martha finding out that Celia is not on the up and up. Ooh, yes, there was an awkward scene between Dick, Dinah, and Huntress, which is really interesting. If only Barbara were there to make it all come together. Man, even with these, I heard that. Oh, yeah, 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 because Dinah had used her canary cry. And then Huntress from off screen says, this is cozy. You into blondes now? And then Dinah says, what's that supposed to mean? And Dick says, ignore her. She's baiting you. Uh, which is really an awkward situation. <laughs> I guess maybe Donna doesn't know that that Dick has slept with Huntress, but you'd think that Barbara being her her biffle would have told her about that. Batman at one point gives some praise to Dinah, calling her a good soldier. I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to find some of these points that I see. Santos finally gets out of the life and hopefully he can start off with a, a good life there. Yeah. So the, the family comes together at the end, only the ones that know of each other's identity, which is Dick, Tim, I almost said Steph, Dick, Tim, Cass, and Babs on his, on Bruce's mother's birthday. And I liked that that scene i guess is that the end yeah that is the end uh, of all of them together and just a nice moment you know bruce not always opening up like that and, and saying he's proud to have them at his side uh and then i guess my last point is just that steph somehow knew she was played i can't believe athena and freeway played me i'd be better off working with catwoman and that wasn't really explained how she figured that out freeway she could have like oh he was involved but i don't know 
that actress and everything. So whatever. Okay. Wow. That was, <laughs> was almost as painful as I thought it was going to be. Okay. So overall, it could be slow at times. I thought that eight issues was entirely too much. I don't it so I guess slow at times. It just seemed to be dragging on and elongated too much. Not all of them were all these issues were focused on a specific member of the network or the bat family. So it's just like, oh, well, how are we filling space in with in between this? If we're not talking about a particular member, what are we? What else are we doing? And they could have because some of they were doubling up sometimes. They didn't give too much space to Cass or Dick and Orpheus and Dino were teamed up and, and Dino wasn't even originally mentioned. So it was just really confusing. I, I felt like they had an idea, but they didn't execute well. And they should have rethought, I think, their, their formatting and maybe the, the points on their journey. After the first two issues, which I, I took more notes, I think, on the first two issues, it seemed like they were just jumping around and there wasn't a great deal of flow from one issue to the next. And really, the only thing that connected Celia and the plan, Roger pops up a couple of times, but then it's just like, I could have read this story or this particular issue by itself. It brings Martha into focus, which is something that doesn't happen a lot. I think it's happened more, you know, in the modern era, like New 52 onward, but I've not seen it in the stuff that I've been doing with Batman. So that was interesting and seeing what uh, that particular side her life was. And I think also that was an interesting way for Celia to insinuate herself into Bruce's life because that, I mean, trap him (laughs) basically by talking about his mother. We also see the importance of each member of the Bat family, though certainly not all are present at the party at the end. And then again with Steph, you call it kind of calls into question, you know, what what is her worth on the team? It was an interesting threat for sure. We've seen it before, trying to destroy the Bat family it was almost secondary though, because because Nicholas, aka Tracker, died, then she started going after Batman. But it was more about destroying Gotham and then actually is really about destroying the Rossettis. So it's just like overly complicated, have one scheme and stick with it. But I think it answered the question of like, what would an evil bat family look like? So maybe that was the essential question. And then this whole thing was what, you know, what it turned out to be. So out of 10 evil bat families, I think maybe I will give it. Hmm. I guess I'll give it a seven out of 10 evil bat families. Okay. Next up, I have some listener email. Here's the mail. It never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. Okay, I've got three. The first up is from Ian Prime, a.k.a. Ian Miller. He said, Dear Stella, I want to say that I 100% agree with you about the Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane by Terry Moore being a big disappointment after the Sean McKeever run, even though I did get a few issues signed by by both Mr. Moore and the artist Craig Rousseau, only because they were scheduled at cons I have attended, and Mr. Keever and artist Takeshi Miyazawa were not sad face emoticon. 
I do really like Moore's series Motor Girl, but I've not read a ton of other stuff he's done. And these Birds of Prey issues really were not up to the standard that Chuck Dixon left. Also, the maps, Gotham Academy backup and Batman is amazing. I'm quite honestly buying the comic for these backups and just reread the whole run. So I'm pumped. Smiley face emoticon. Yeah. And she appears again. I don't talk about Batman in this episode, but she does appear again. So I, I also recommend it. I have to admit that I'm very much not a fan of the current. Oh, my goodness. I'm not much of a fan of the current Nightwing run, but I'm not usually a Nightwing fan in general. So that's not too surprising. I was pleased to see Gun Bunny and Gun Hawk back, though I'm sad about Hawk's fate, said Emoticon. Ooh, kind of cool that Tom is interested in checking out the rest of this arc for Batgirls, even as someone who considers himself not part of the target audience. Anyway, very glad that you're so enjoying the back rolls as I am and hope that Cass can help Steph get out of this mind control soon. Yeah, same here. Next up is from my Earth 2 BFF, Shana. She says, hi, Stella. I think my biggest fear for Batgirls is that there isn't going to be any substantial growth for our leading ladies and or not enough focus on the relationships between the three of them. I think a part of me also wants this to be the new Birds of Prey 90s and early aughts run, and I am expecting this to have a similar focus on the women and their relationships with one another, though I fear I am getting my hopes up the last 10 years of Batgirl and Birds a prey or anything to go by also who doesn't love a good phil noto cover i actually have birds of prey 47 and 48 signed by phil noto and hanging in my office at home those covers are some of my favorites ever and i love looking at them every day i'm glad you and tom agree thanks for another great episode all the best shana p.s how do you feel about ancient greek and then p.s.s grad school is a but 100% worth it if you know it will lead to where you want to be. Smiley face emoticon. Congratulations on starting your program. Ancient Greek, I had to take that. Uh, I ended up staying one extra year at University of Virginia in order to get my master, no, sorry, my double major in architecture and Latin because I had to take one year of ancient Greek and I enjoyed it. I mean, it kicked my butt in a sense of like, I could kind of coast with Latin, just knowing that grammar really well. And then I really had to, you know, take my time like, oh, wow, this is like learning Latin all over again, but a bit more complex and having six principal parts and more <laughs> moods and things like that. So it gave my brain a workout, but I really enjoyed it. And if I got 100s on tests in that class, uh, hashtag, you know, shout out to John Mickelson. I, yeah, I had a great deal of fun with that. I'm I'm sad to say that I feel like I've forgotten maybe all of it, <laughs> maybe not all of it, but yeah, that's just a bummer just because I haven't used it. So I've, I've certainly lost it. And then, uh, yeah, grad school. Thank you for that. I am having fun. I think I, yeah, I'm definitely putting the work in for sure. And that's, that's, yeah, this journey is exciting for me. And then just, you know, what it will bring me to next. And the, the curriculum and instruction is, I feel like I've already said this, the curriculum and instruction is stuff that I've done, but the literacy is all like new stuff, um, which is just crazy, like learning all these terms, but it's, it's been fun to get back into school and learn something and, and feel like I'm doing something worthwhile because at my job, I feel like this is not, I'm not leading a good life. This is, I'm not leaving my best life. <laughs> this is not what I should be doing right now. So the school is like, almost able to, it almost helps me alleviate some of that um, stress and discomfort. And then finally from Kensworth, 
aka Ken, says, hey, so I just want to say I'm incredibly happy to have found this podcast. Oracle is the reason I got into comics and the DC universe through Chuck Dixon and Gail Simone's Birds of Prey runs back in high school. It is such a surprise and a delight to find a podcast dedicated to her. I can't thank you enough for hosting this show and dedicating your time to it. Smiley face emoticon. Side note, I haven't seen the recent Detective Comics run in any of your quickies, so if you haven't taken a look at them yet, I can highly recommend them. Mariko Tamaki has really nailed that mystery and intrigue and bat uh-oh. And Babs is playing a coordinator role as they unravel this latest mystery with the Bat family. Mariko's been writing Detective Comics since 1034, but the current storyline starts with 1047 if you want a quick pace uh, place to pick up. Much love, Ken. Well, Ken. That is very unfortunate that you told me this. I was skipping it because I no one told me. I basically thought, oh, well, Barbara's only in Batman. Maybe she's not in the Detective Comics. It was my own fault. I can't rely on anyone else to find out this information. So that's why I hadn't been doing it. But I guess now I will have to potentially rectify that. But yeah, Tamaki is certainly someone that I followed in the past. So I'm not surprised with the praise that you have given her. So I guess I'll have to maybe catch up on some of that detective stuff and see what Barbara is doing since she's not actually been popping up in Batman for the the past two issues. So maybe that's why she's over there. Remember, you can always send any questions or comments to backworldtheoracle.gmail.com and I will read it out for you. I actually have, because I went backwards, I have two comments from my YouTube video on part two. So I guess I will read them next time because it won't make sense here necessarily. But one of them answers some questions that I had and then we'll see what else, what other comment it was. I'm sorry. I feel like I just was not all... 100% on this story that I talked about. I'm kind of glad it's over though. So I just feel like I was hopping around. It wasn't as good, but I think part two is more cohesive for sure of this episode. So I'm going to take a break. And when I come back, I'm going to cover Nightwing and a full review of Bat Earl's number three. But first, Zias's radio hour featuring Sexy Villain by Remy Wolf. See you soon.
So here we are. We've got one quickie, which is just Nightwing. And then I will talk about Batgirls number three. So just starting right off the bat with Nightwing 89, World's Finest Sons, part one. Writer Tom Taylor, artist Bruno Redondo, and colorist Adriana Lucas. Superman slash Nightwing crossover. Years ago, when Robin took his first uncertain steps away from Batman as his own hero, Superman stepped in and offered Dick Grayson crucial advice, support, and a name, Nightwing. Now it's time for Nightwing (laughs) to return the favor. So overall, I, yeah, I enjoyed this. The second part is coming out. It's going to be in... I think it's called Superman, Son of Kal-El, and that's next month. So you have to wait a bit for it. But starting off the bat, just with a a really cool cover. And I don't know if it was this book or if it was one of the Nightwings that I've done or one of the Batman stories that I've done, you know, crossovers and, and big stories where there is that really poignant moment between, I think, I feel like it was this book between Nightwing and Superman. It must've been because even Nightwing says, oh yeah, Superman told me to check in on his son. But I think there's just something really special about this. And of course we, we always think about Superman and Batman's relationship, but I think it's really special and unique when Superman and Nightwing get together. And of course this is a different dynamic because it's not Superman, Superman, but it is the son of Superman. Right off the bat, uh, I will have to say, oh, this is funny because it says then like years ago. And I thought, well, then means the beginning of the new 52 because of the the color scheme that Nightwing has. But this was actually a really fun intro. They are tracking down, trying to find Superman's son who went flying at night when he wasn't supposed to and got lost. And, you know, he sees a giant bat and, of course, gets scared. But this moment of, you know, they move. And Batman says, what happened? And Dick's like, what happened? You know, he's hiding in the cave with a giant bat showed up and then pulls both of their masks off so that he can show John that they are okay. And then in a non-bat jerk move, Bruce and Clark have this really special moment 
where he is talking about, you know, what it's like to be a father and you're worrying all the time and that never stops because even Alfred comes in and checks in on Bruce, but it gets easier and, you know, it's just great to be a father. And then also the the fact that Bruce apparently has lollipops in his in his utility belt and apparently dangerously close to smoke bombs. So you don't know what you're going to get, but just a really nice moment in the beginning. And then we see John struggling, not being able to talk with his father and this, uh, shipperific, this, this issue actually was pretty shipperific. Here's the first one, of course, where Babs, Babs and Dick are sleeping in the same bed. So there's, you know, shipper moment number one, and she's got 18 Titans, t-shirt on i think it's like teen titans go though that's certainly what the font looks like and and she says dick there's a robot petting our dog (laughs) which is just like probably said really nonchalantly with no emphasis and it's just like a super bizarre but really funny scene and then yeah it probably is teen titans go as you can see and yeah calyx came to visit and so dick and babs moments which are great and her hair is tousled. We shan't question it. And then here's our second shipper moment with John and this guy that I don't really know who he is at all. I guess he can walk through walls. So that's pretty cool. And there's a, a pretty funny moment uh, of them getting along. So you can kind of see their relationship. But they end up having a meeting with Dick Grayson. And I thought this was a bit bizarre that they need masks in order to meet up with somebody but you know again i guess it's i don't know what's happening and why that this is necessary so it's good to to read other books and i'm not so there you go and i did like this moment here where dick receives news about a hero getting killed and then he walks away and then whispers superman i know you can hear me meet me at the crime scene which was pretty cool so even though i mean it's dick grayson so of course he knows who you are but i wonder to what extent they knew who dick grayson was and i guess he technically outed himself there john does say how did you know it was me but maybe at that point in time maybe he didn't know that that was dick grayson because if they or nightwing because if they did know then i guess they wouldn't have found the need to Put on masks. But that was basically it. We've got this mission. Multiple heroes heroes are being killed all over the world. It leads to LexCorp, you know, surprising no one. And this will cross over back into, yeah, Superman, Son of Kal-El, number nine, which is in March, I guess. So, yeah, a pretty good one. The shipper moments, of course, are the what I look out for. But let us get into the main event of this half, which you know and I know as being Batgirls number three. Has it gotten better? Is it? Does it feel different? Is Babs still a den mother? We shall see. Okay, so here is the, again, if we look at this, Barbara not present on the cover, mainly focusing on Steph and Cass, and then, of course, you have the tutor and Barbara as a zombie and as a Batgirl zombie, along with Steph and Cass, are spray painted on the wall. So that's all we see of her, but we don't see a real life Barbara Gordon. So take that as you will, symbolism wise. Okay, story, Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad, art, George Corona, colors, Sarah Stern. And I forgot if they're... There should be, I think, 
a subtitle to this. Maybe I'm wrong. Oh, I think it's it's been the same subtitle, hasn't it? Of yeah, one way or another, part three of six. There you go. Art George Corona and Colors, Sarah Stern and Ivan Placencia. Okay, picking back up with the rally, Tudor continues huffing a fear toxin mix while telling his lemmings to embrace the fear. Meanwhile, Steph is repeating everything he and the mindless masses says and or say, and Cass tries to snap her out of it. She does, but no indication as to why or how. Oracle checks in and they update her and they decide to rush Tudor. He expels some gas and both back rolls are dazed and see their fathers. Oracle instructs them to exit above and they escape back home. Oracle does a Rorschach test on Steph, but she is uninterested, meaning Steph's uninterested, and there is no conclusion as to why she was affected, but Cass was not. Bab somehow knows, I don't know how, but she does, that the fear gas was diluted with nitrous oxide, you know, that crashing racing villain, which explains Tudor's ability to mind control and maybe his art throughout the city is a trigger for those affected. And because there's his art all over the city, that's going to be a problem. There's some investigative talk, like the fact Tudor's behind all the thefts. Babs tried to lift fingerprints off of a flyer but couldn't and then when talk switches to the serial killer babs demands evidence from steph that mr green is the serial killer she says you know well he'd have to be spryer than his age would have you believe and steph is once again annoyed but babs says hey I don't know much about Seer either. See, we're on the same page, which I don't think so. I don't think so. Talk quickly shifts to Kofefe, as I like to call it, and the fact that Cass apparently can follow directions and bruise it the best. So hands down, she's the one who's going to be doing it every morning. The Beckerels decide to crash an art show this weekend, establishing a perimeter, setting up a microgrid to access every online device in the area, which seems illegal hacking and tracking everyone in attendance. Steph is upset that Babs is not going with them and they never do anything together, but it turns out that Babs gets manipulated into going anyway. So yay for a team up. Grace O'Halloran talks about the Tudor tutor and his social activism while simultaneously imbibing. Apparently, even Cass notices that she drinks too much. Babs is on the ground and encounters an old fling by the name of Charles Dante, and neither readers nor Babs can get away from him soon enough. <laughs> he keeps talking about old times and maybe weird sexual encounters before Tudor pops up on people's devices and people realize their own things are in that sculpture of stolen items. Greed and being a slave to capitalism seems to be the theme. So maybe Tudor is a communist, who knows? Babs tells the back rolls to get inside the ship where the signal is coming from, and she ditches Charles. Once inside the back rolls attack, but Steph is quickly manipulated, and Cass has to fight both her and Tudor off. After a wrong move from Tudor in nearly hurting Steph, he runs off because he's nervous about what Cass is about to do. Babs tracks him and tells the girls to lay low and return to headquarters. We see the saints were watching the whole thing, hoping to catch the back rolls, but they do not. Back home, Steph is pretty down on herself that she is the weak link. Remember that game show? And doesn't want to be a liability to the team. But Cass is adamant that she is so strong. Where's Barbara's encouragement? I don't know, but it wasn't there. Babs goes to bed early and Cass sends a battering message to the bookstore owner telling him that they found his wife's pot and they leave it on his doorstep. 
Babs has an evening conversation with Dick, which seems to be accelerating towards phone sex when he suddenly calls her a loser and Babs immediately knows that it is Seer with some ghost face voice modulating technology, hashtag scream. Seer says she sent a, quote, hot pick, end quote, and Babs runs upstairs in a panic to see Nightwing bloodied on all of her computer screens. Next, trust no one, which... Those are words to live by because of just the constant betrayals that I go through. It's probably good to actually do that. Okay, well, let us begin. I think it's a really good question why Steph was manipulated but not Cass. I have no idea, and I hope that it is explained Once this arc is over, which we see is six issues, and I can't really tell if the whole arc is going to be with Tudor or it's also spliced up with the Saints as well. But it leads her, which makes sense, to believing that something's wrong with her, that she's the weak link of the team. And I don't know what it is about Stephanie Brown that she is automatically the character that this will happen to. And in the first part of this episode, That seems, I mean, she's the first person that Celia goes after and I don't know, easily manipulated in that story that I covered. So I'm not sure. I I feel like it's damaging. Why not focus on all of their gifts and strengths rather than already showing two of the three having some strengths and really adding something to the team and then this other one losing self-confidence steadily because it seems like she should not be on the team. So I don't know. Luckily, as we saw later on, both Steph and Cass are manipulated by this sphere toxin mixture and they both see their father. So there's that emotional connection right there. But this was a concentrated dose. They were right there at ground zero, you could almost say. So of course, Cass is going to get it. She's not that mentally strong to withstand that. I think even Batman would be under its influence. So I don't know. It's a good question. She easily, again, in that second fight, she's of course manipulated by Tudor. And now there's an issue with Cass having to go up against both her teammate and the villain. So this needs to be resolved. And I hope that it's a worthwhile answer. And then maybe it's, I don't know, something that could be positive, like, hey, you have an artsy brain and it affects the artsy types of people. I don't know. But I'm looking forward to what that could be. Since when does Barbara Gordon have a psychology degree enough to use the Rorschach test or I guess give the Rorschach test and also understand what the results are? I know that when the New 52 began, she had a forensic psychology degree that Gil Simone gave her. I don't know that that necessarily, if those two mix, but here we go. And she's taking notes as if she knows what's going on. (laughs) And, you know, Barbara says a very psychologist thing. Interesting. Who knows? I do like some positivity here when they're going through this and and setting up the plan for when they're going to basically crash this art show that you've got the word bubbles with a small head next to them, which I thought was really fun. So I, I would like that to pop up again. Babs is still not listening to Steph, which is frustrating to me. 
Mr. Green is quite old. I can't see him lifting a bag of potatoes into a dumpster, let alone a body. If you want to convince me. Yeah. Yeah. And she's like smiling about it. I, I don't understand. I mean, is this supposed to be cute? Because it's, it's getting kind of annoying by this point in time. I am also confused why Barbara has to be forced to be a physical presence on the mission. So she says, let's see, the two of you, I won't be attending. Steph is, come on, Babs, Batgirl's forever, the three of us. It'll be rad, right, Cass? And Babs says, Sears still out there. My network can't afford to be compromised again. Besides, I've been to enough gallery openings to know that they're not my scene. She says, no, that's final, but of course it's not. But why do they need to pressure her and force her to come? If they're an actual team, and look at how beautiful that image is of the three of them working together. I mean, I guess that's from Steph's imagination. But uh, what? I, I don't understand what this team is supposed to be if it can't be that at times. And she doesn't even use, had she used a physical issue as her an excuse, as her excuse, I would have allowed it, but it was anything but that. So yeah, I don't really know what to say. Okay. I think this is probably Grace's, I mean, she kind of cracks me up. But I'm glad. I think the the amount that they show Grace is enough. I think if you were to have just pages upon pages of her, then it would be too much. But she she just pops up every issue. She does something funny. I guess she's an alcoholic. And then she she hops off. So I think that's good. So I think this is probably what Donovan was. He didn't he wasn't necessarily trolling me about it but he certainly teased me he said oh boy i wish carolyn was on for this episode because there's going to be some gossip or it's gossipy or something like that this is clearly it first of all looking very nice a beautiful and attractive barbara gordon but this guy charles dante i mean what is this nonsense absolute nonsense i i can't even <sighs> there are some really weird quotes I always hoped we'd we see I'm so flustered. I'd always hoped we'd reconnect one day, you know, make up for lost time. Can I grab you a drink? It's not exactly where we left off, but it's a start. You know, I have a nasty habit of coming on too strong here. Before you go, my card, call me sometime. Let me take you out to lunch. There was something, there was another thing that I rolled my eyes at. Oh, we can sneak below deck like that time. <laughs> Oh, college was years ago. Barbara, are you nervous because of how he left things? Who is this? And I got so wrapped up in how annoying he is. And I thought, number one, how annoying he is. Number two, how annoyed I was that it was another boyfriend that was just going to be thrust upon us, thrust upon Barbara, that I completely forgot that Barbara's actually in a relationship with Dick Grayson. So that's how like powerfully annoying this guy is to me because I just forgot that, oh, really, it shouldn't matter because I don't think she's going to have any interest with him, even though she did take his card and kept it and looked at it later on in the in the issue. I feel like Charles Tudor might in fact be sorry. That was a slip right there. I feel like Charles Dante is in fact Charles Tudor is in fact Tudor because he's all about art therapy. But it's kind of a cliche now, I feel like, with any newly introduced character automatically being the villain. So 
I'm either right and well, we can get rid of him. He's a, he's annoying and he's also the villain, so no loss there. Or maybe they'll they'll subvert my expectations. Okay. Oh yes, I do want to talk about this. This has been popping up all along, but these narration boxes are in third person. Oh, I'm trying to think. There was something really annoying that like once it started it, it started off somewhat cute but then as it progressed and as it progressed it kept getting used yeah okay so here at the beginning a signal output amplification device but sure gizmo works and so this was right after step had said this is at the very beginning oracle we rigged the gizmo so you think oh maybe that's oracle talking but it's not it is an actual third person omniscient narrator on this story in this book for some reason so we can assume it's becky clunan and conrad here because at one point at the very end they say you remember these three right they had a really cool intro in issue two if you didn't read it you'll just have to trust us these aren't these are turning into editor boxes that should not be like that Editor boxes are those little white boxes that appear once and would say, you know, read issue two to get who these are. Not all of this. So this is like, I wouldn't even consider it meta, but it's, it's, I don't know when the last time was that I had, well, I guess I shouldn't say that. We have plenty of third person narrator boxes in comics, but why couldn't it be either don't have narration because it's honestly not adding to anything here or have one of the ladies narrate. I, I really don't understand. And honestly, as I put my note here, like they were getting annoying and more annoying as the issue progressed. So uh, I didn't recall them being like this, but perhaps it was just ambiguous before and it seemed like it was Barbara. And now it's just really clear that it's someone that's not inside the story. So even if it were Seer, that would maybe be kind of cool that Seer is just always there and knows everything that's going on. But Seer has those very particular boxes with the sort of the data bits around with the pink and then the the blue yellow data bit almost around but that's not what it is so i don't know i i actually really wanted to stop <laughs> so either discontinue the narration as it is maybe make it more helpful or like just completely stop it but there we are more questions about barbara and what she does or doesn't do as team leader she actually tells the girls don't pursue him come on home she's got eyes on him. Why not pursue? I'm, I don't know. He'll be expecting that. Meet me back home. Let's lie low tonight. You two did really well. I guess I'm just confused. What sort of team this is? Does that make sense? Should you not pursue when he is, or yeah, he is on the run and you might have the advantage over him. I have no idea. I mean, in this case, but she wouldn't have known the saints could go after them right away. But again, I don't know. Okay. So then we go home. Steph, of course, has that down moment here. She feels worthless, which I've already discussed. And Barbara goes to bed. I do like that moment that Cass uh, gave that pot back. I, I assume that he's going to be a, a minor character for us. And then 
yeah, this, this, oh my gosh, uh, good to hear your voice. So I'm like, oh, a shipping moment. He asks her if you want to come over and I want a bit, you know, with me. She says, oh, I'd really like that. But, you know, it's it's pretty late. And then he brings up that they're already on the phone. And she says, you're rather randy tonight, which, of course, you know, no one thinks about that unless you think about Austin Powers. And then which someone showed this to me on the Twitter, of course, I had already read it, but they point out to me pretty shagadelic, which, you know, of course, let us pay due respect to Shagalicious himself, Shag Matthews. Maybe that's a reference to him. Maybe the writers know all about Shag Matthews. But she, <laughs> what's about to happen? Listen, I may enjoy seeing Barbara and Dick clothed and in the same bed, but I also, I, I don't need to see what goes on before that. Yes, I have read some fan fictions, but also I kind of draw the line here. And yeah, she takes off the towel off her head. Something's about to go down. But then he says, you're a loser. And that shocks her out of it, of course. And I was a bit astounded, too. I thought, oh, my gosh, what sort of weird uh, foreplay or or game are they playing here? And then she quickly realizes that it is Seer, which is pretty invasive, Seer is definitely a troll. Still don't know who this person is. Could it be Wendy Harris? And then, yeah, so she runs up and then we see these, which I imagine aren't real, but here we are. Pleasant dreams. So, oh, I do like there was something. Let's see here. That Seer says, wasn't this, was it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm coming for you, Barbara. I'm coming to get you, which I wondered was if it was a reference to Night of the Living Dead, which, of course, I play that clip from time to time. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Johnny. You're still afraid. Stop it now. I mean it. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it. You're ignorant. They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it. You're acting like a child. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Oh, okay. So I'm still not sure what this book is trying to achieve. From the outset, I would say that this book, the point of it was to bring these powerful fan beloved characters together who have of course in common the back row mantle and to put them together they each learn from each other and you know they go on missions they each bring their own strength their own baggage i think with them and they're able to grow as women and human beings and become a family and What I'm getting here is three people thrust together. Two of them have a pretty strong relationship. One of them has become an overseer of sorts who doesn't really want to participate in missions, but tells the others what to do is not super encouraging or uplifting stops missions doesn't listen about missions or things that are being observed and really doesn't want to be a part of a team. Like that's how I'm seeing Barbara. I I don't, I really don't know 
what happened and why it has happened in this way, but I, I do not like it. This is three. So right now, potentially an arc would be done because oftentimes three issues and, and an arc is finished, but this is a six part storyline. So I hope that things get ironed out by the end of this. And, and I, I feel like things that are supposed to be cute, I'm not getting it as, as being cute. I mean, there's a serial killer. And for the third issue in a row, Barbara is telling Steph that she doesn't believe her. And for whatever reason, Stephanie Brown, and and I'm not saying that Stephanie Brown is the best hero, you know, in the DC universe is the best hero on the Bat family, but I'm actually starting to get pretty sick and tired of reading stuff where she's the easiest one to take down. She's, I don't know, portrayed as stupid and easily manipulated. And then, of course, she's going to have low self-confidence. So I just feel like that's negative portrayal of a woman and almost like society's view of of how one could take down a, a woman. And maybe, you know, like, this is what women are like and let's beat them down. And look, she's so weak. She's manipulated and she can destroy her own team. Why? Why are you doing that? And and it's not just in 2021, 2022, but also 2002, just really confused about that. And 2002 might be more believable if only because she was, you know, on starting, she was being trained by Batman and then Batman stopped training her. But here, I feel like we were having a different characterization with her in rebirth era and all that. So I, I really don't know what's going on there. And then of course the narration boxes just, I would say just need to stop. I don't think we need, it doesn't add anything. I don't know if you disagree with me or what, if you like those and they're cute, I mean, some of them are fun, but then they start to get really intrusive and I don't need to know to go read issue two to figure out who the saints are. If you want to tell me that make a little white box, not three purple boxes that are, distracting me from what's going on. So I feel like ne- no, no, not at all. And then I step back and I think to myself, Stella, did you put too much weight on this and too much, your expectations were too high? I think my expectations were where they should be for a book that people were clamoring for, for years with three amazing characters that again, all have the Batgirl cowl in common. And unfortunately, this book is not living up to my expectations. I don't know if I'm alone in this. I don't really look at other reviews because I'm just going to say, you know, I just want my own mind. I don't like to be influenced by others. And, you know, the same goes for you guys, right? I'm just one voice. And if, if I'm having trouble with it and you're loving it, I want you to absolutely love it. I don't want to be that person that drags it down for you. These are just some, that's what I'm trying to be pretty moderate in in my review and not hate on it. I think I'm just showing some criticisms. Hopefully you agree that they're not, they're they're just, you know, some healthy constructive criticisms and not tearing this book down because I think this book still deserves a place. And I think, you know, I still think it's a, a beautiful book to look at. And I think that it's fun in places, but I, I'm having some issues and it's really Barbara Gordon. Barbara Gordon is what I'm having issues with. And then, you know, a little bit of what they're doing to Steph. So I don't even know what to give this. I feel like I might give this six and a half or a seven cup nudes. 
Is it a C or is it a D plus? I'll give it a seven. I'll say that it's a C. It's a C minus. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, (laughs) on to the next. I hope that it gets better. I mean, people might really be loving this. I should um, go to the the interwebs. I should check with Ian Prime. He would probably be my go-to person to tell me whether I'm just off my rocker with my thoughts on this particular book. Okay. Well, I think we are reaching the end of this anime watch list. There is none, but I still recommend Bell. I think you can still probably catch that in theaters. And what are you wearing? Doesn't matter in this segment, but I'll probably wear something different for part one to make it thematic. So then we get to literature recommendations. Okay, I think the last one that I talked about was Ariadne by Jennifer Saint, which if you know, just rehash, it is in the perspective of Ariadne who helps Theseus get to the center of the labyrinth and kill the Minotaur and then get out. And that all happens within the first hundred pages. So if you didn't know, he abandons her and then it's what her life is like after that. And it also follows her sister. So I recommend that if you liked Circe and a different author, but just getting to know the story of well-known myths from the perspective of the women that are in those myths, because we know that women aren't (laughs) treated very kindly in mythology. And then I read, uh, someone lent it to me from work, which is great, Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Doerr, who also wrote all the light we cannot see. I think that's what it's called. So if you like that, this is very different. So I do want to at least warn you about that. 13-year-old Anna, an orphan, lives inside the formidable walls of Constantinople in a house of women who make their living embroidering the robes of priests. Restless, insatiably curious, Anna learns to read. And in this ancient city, famous for its library, she finds a book, The Story of Athon, who longs to be turned into a bird so that he can fly to a utopian paradise in the sky. This she reads to her alien sister as the walls of the only place she has known are bombarded in the great siege of Constantinople. Outside the walls is Omir, a village boy miles from home, conscripted with his beloved oxen into the invading army. His path and Anna's will cross. 500 years later, in a library in Idaho, octogenarian, love that word, Zeno, who learned Greek as a prisoner of war, rehearses five children in the Korean War. Rehearses five children in a play adaptation of Athan's story, preserved against all odds through centuries. Tucked among the library shelves is a bomb planted by a troubled, idealistic teenager, Seymour. This is another siege. And in a not-so-distant future, on the interstellar ship Argos, Constance is alone in a vault copying on scraps of sacking the of sacking that's interesting on scraps of sacking the story of Athan told to her by her father she has never set foot on our planet so multiple different stories in the beginning it's hard to figure out how they're all connected and like I said it is rather different from all the light we cannot see but I enjoyed it and it's really a book about books a book about reading I then read You've Reached Sam. I got into trouble because I had some of these on hold for a long time, and then they came in all at once. And of course, I had grad school reading. Oh, it was a lot, but I made it. So You've Reached Sam by Dustin Tao. 
17-year-old Julie has her future all planned out, move out of her small town with her boyfriend, Sam, attend college in the city, spend a summer in Japan. But then Sam dies and everything changes. Heartbroken, Julie skips his funeral, throws out his things, and tries everything to forget him and the tragic way he died. But a message Sam left behind in her yearbook forces back memories. Desperate to hear his voice one more time, Julie calls Sam's cell phone just to listen to his voicemail. And Sam picks up the phone. In a miraculous turn of events, Julie's been given a second chance Said goodbye. The connection is temporary, but hearing Sam's voice makes her fall for him all over again, and with each call, it becomes harder to let him go. However, keeping her otherworldly calls with Sam a secret isn't easy, especially when Julie witnesses the suffering Sam's family is going through. Unable to stand by the sidelines and watch their shared loved ones in pain, Julie is torn between spilling the truth about her calls with Sam and risking their connection and losing him forever. And I really enjoyed just a young adult novel, I think, dealing with grief in a really interesting and unique way and how tough it is to let go of your first love, especially in a tragic way. And what does it mean to move on? And is it a betrayal if you're moving on? So I I recommend that. And then finally, actually, that's not finally, but a spindle splintered uh, Alex E. Harrow, Harrow. And it is, let's see here, it's Zinnia's 21st birthday. Zinnia kind of reminds me of Zenobia from, but anyways, which is extra special because it's the last birthday she'll ever have. When she was young, an industrial accident left Zinnia with a rare condition. Not much is known about her illness, just that no one has lived past 21. Her best friend Charm is intent on making Zinnia's last birthday special with a full Sleeping Beauty experience, complete with a tower and a spinning wheel. But when Zinnia pricks her finger, something strange and unexpected happens, and she finds herself falling through worlds with another Sleeping Beauty, just as desperate to escape her fate. So it is definitely, yeah, it's it's a feminist take on Sleeping Beauty, I think is kind of the tagline so it is interesting it's only a little over 100 pages you can knock that out pretty quickly i also read though it's not listed here (sighs) sylvia plath's the bell jar for the second time i think i've probably already talked about that and you can catch that on march's episode of required reading with tom and stella and then i'm currently reading and i should finish tomorrow probably death in the nile by agatha christie and i oh, i almost finished it before seeing the film but i saw the film yesterday so i know how or who the murderers are but i'll be interested to see because the movie changed things anyways i'll be interested to see how it wraps up in the actual book and i think that's it my reading has who really taking a drastic turn (laughs) because usually I can prattle off a bunch of books that I've read and I don't have time to give you synopses. I just say thumbs up, thumbs down. But yeah, the majority of reading I've been doing has certainly been for grad school (laughs) and the, the curriculum and instruction course. These are things that I'm aware of. I've, I've done them at school. So it's just almost refreshing, but the literacy course, every term I'm like, writing it down and defining it multiple times. Each time I like find phonological awareness, I'm writing down what that is until I know this is what phonological awareness is. So rhyme, R-I-M-E, onsets, everything is new. It's it's a lot. It is a lot. <laughs> so that's kind of my, my reading, if only that would count as uh, pages and books. Ooh, okay. So that's it. 
Remember, you can send any questions or comments to batgirl.oracle at gmail.com. I'd love to hear what you think about Batgirls currently. And am I alone in some of these thoughts? Do you like the narration boxes? Do you like Barbara's characterization or, you know, what that team is? This what you expected? How about that? Like the show on Facebook, follow it on Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle. Subscribe to the show on YouTube for an uncut version. Follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. And be sure to support the Batman Universe by subscribing to Patreon. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. And until next time, fly on, Bats lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. <sighs> I love a happy ending, don't you? Everybody's there. I want to thank you all for coming to the wedding. I'd appreciate you going even more. I mean, you must have lots of better things to do. And not a word of it to Paul. Remember, Paul, you know the man I'm going to marry, but I'm not because I wouldn't ruin anyone as wonderful as he is. But I thank you all for the gifts and the flowers. Thank you all. Now it's back to the showers. Don't tell Paul, but I'm not getting married today. And everybody, look, I don't know what you're waiting for. A wedding, what's a wedding? It's a prehistoric ritual where everybody promises fidelity forever, which is maybe the most horrifying word I ever heard, and which is followed by a honeymoon where suddenly he'll realize he's sat up with a nut and want to kill me like he should. So listen, thanks a bunch, but I'm not getting married. Go have brunch, because I'm not getting married. You've been grand, but I'm not getting married. Don't just stand there, I'm not getting married. I don't tell Paul, but I'm not getting married today. Go, can't you go? Why is nobody listening? Goodbye, go and cry at some other person's wake. If you're quick for a kick, you could pick up a christening. But please, on my knees, there's a human life at stake. 
Listen, everybody, I'm afraid you didn't hear. Or do you want to see a crazy person fall apart in front of you? It isn't only Paul who may be ruining his life. You know, we'll both of us be losing our identities. I telephoned my shrink and he said, maybe I should come and see him Monday. But by Monday, I'll be floating in the Hudson with the other garbage. I'm not well, so I'm not getting married. You've been swell, but I'm not getting married. Clear the hall, because I'm not getting married. Thank you all, but I'm not getting married. I never tell Paul, but I'm not getting married today. Getting married, I'll let us pray, and we are getting married tonight. 